This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Tracy Bumgard, driving the show with Asanda Matsunyani, Wasani Matibula and Fikile Lengwati. The top stories on Africa Digest this hour. South Sudan's government reacts angrily to the ethnic killing of 20 people at a UN camp. Statistics show a marked decrease in new cases of meningitis in Africa. In economics, South Africa ranked the cheapest country in the world to live and retire. And in sport, Kenya's sports minister confident that they will meet the requirements set by WADA. But first, the news with Asanda. Good evening. The U.S. Special Envoy in the Great Lakes, Tomas Periello, has called on the Burundian government to engage all stakeholders in an attempt to solve the problem of refugees faced in the country. Periello made the remarks following the Rwandan government's announcement that it plans to relocate Burundian refugees from its territory. The announcement comes after allegations against Rwanda that it recruits and trains the Burundian refugees as rebels to fight Kurunziza's government. From Bunjumbura, Bernard Bankukira reports. Thanking the refugee-hosting countries, especially Rwanda, Tanzania and Democratic Republic of Congo, Mr. Periel expressed his fear over the recent comments made by Rwanda to relocate Burundian refugees. He says his country is ready to work for their protection under the humanitarian law. Mr. Periello affirms to have testified before the U.S. Congress about what was going on in Rwandan territory that constitutes a great concern to his government. He reminds that refugee camps must remain a sacrosanct area, calling on neighbors to be the voice for peace. Statistics show that cases of meningitis disease in Africa have reduced. Data indicates that cases of the infectious disease went from over 250,000 during an outbreak in 1996 to just 80 confirmed cases in 2015 among countries that had not yet conducted mass immunization campaigns. Since 2010, the World Health Organization has reported that 16 of the 26 countries of the African meningitis belt, which stretches from Senegal to Ethiopia have conducted initial mass vaccination campaigns to protect their people. Matsidi Somueti is the World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa. Today, over 235 million people in 16 countries have been vaccinated and an even larger number are protected by MenaFreeVac, a licensed conjugate vaccine developed to the highest international standards. No case of meningitis has been recorded yet in vaccinated populations. 
The Department of Health in South Africa says there's no need to panic over the Zika virus. The country's health minister, Aaron Mutsualedi, announced that a Colombian businessman visiting the country was diagnosed with the virus by a private Johannesburg pathology laboratory. However, Professor Lucille Bloomberg, who's deputy director of the National Institute of Communicable Diseases, says the confirmation of this case doesn't pose any risk to the South African population. Yes, he had very mild illness, he, uh, he got better very quickly, and he's absolutely fine. And he uh, likely got his infection in his home city of Cali, Cala, in Colombia, and we know Colombia is experiencing quite a large outbreak. The virus is in the blood for a very short time, and uh, it's not spread from person to person just by being next to somebody. You need a specific and competent mosquito to be involved in transmission. Meanwhile, Cuban President Raul Castro has called on the entire Cuban population to help eradicate mosquitoes that carry the Zika virus. Castro has ordered 9,000 army troops to help starve off the disease. Cuba has yet to detect a case of Zika, but the outbreak is affecting large parts of Latin America and the Caribbean and is likely to spread to all countries in the Americas except for Canada and Chile. That's according to the World Health Organization. The government, which has fumigated neighborhoods and homes for decades to contain dengue, has put doctors on alert for the virus and ramped up mosquito eradication efforts. Finally, the Anglican Church of Southern Africa has broken with conservative African tradition and welcomed gay and lesbian members into their congregations. Bishops in the subcontinent have resolved that gay and lesbian partners who enter into same-sex civil unions should be welcomed as full members of the church. Archbishop of Cape Town in South Africa, Tabo Makoba, says a document will be sent to the church's provincial synod. Berenice Moss reports. Mahoba says congregations will not be able to refuse to baptize children of same-sex couples, nor should either they or their parents be stigmatized. He says gay, lesbian and transgendered members share in full membership as baptized members of the body of Christ. Mahoba acknowledged that Southern Africa's bishops were divided on the matter. He says the differences among the bishops were over the theology of marriage and a result of realities on the ground in different dioceses. He expressed his determination to avoid splits in the church in southern Africa over the issue. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Thank you, Asanda. South Sudan's government has reacted angrily to the ethnic killing of 20 people at the United Nations internally displaced camp in Malakal, north of the capital, Juba. The, country, the government rather asked the UN mission in Malakal to admit that its security officers are to blame for the killing of the RDPs at a camp, accommodating nearly 50,000 displaced people. James Shimanyula reports. For the first time since last week when 20 internally displaced people were killed in ethnic fighting at the United Nations IDP camp in Malakal town north of Juba, the government of President Salva Kiir in South Sudan has expressed anger at the security lacks that led to the deaths. Since the killings occurred four days ago, 
UN troops have increased perimeter patrols while physically securing areas in the vicinity of the protection of civilian site. Reacting to the killing, South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay made the following remarks at a press conference in the capital, Yuba. The government does not know much about the situation in Malakal because it happened in the Unionist camp. South Sudan is a safe country and uh, remember very well there was silence. This type of fighting also took place here in Juba last year in the Unionist camp. Now it has occurred in Malakal. So I call upon the enemies actually to, to protect the, the population that are with them in the camp. It is within the camp of Unimis. That camp is under the control and the management of the Unimis. It's not within the government area. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay made it clear that security of the IDP camp in Malakal is entirely in the hands of the UN and not its government. Mission is within the government control area. But the camp as such, that area of the UN compound is fully under the control of the UN. Government does not enter there because it is fully under the control of the UNIMIS. And it is the UNIMIS that is responsible for the protection of these people, not the government of South Sudan. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay compared the security surrounding the Malakal IDP camp to security that is put around embassies in any capital in the world. A protected area just like an embassy in any country. And there is no way we can enter that camp without being called by the UNIMIS administration. So that place is protected. It is fully under their control. They have their forces there who are, who are providing the necessary protection and security. One of the main tasks of UNIMIS is the protection of the civil population. And this is what they, they, they are doing. And uh, the fact that they are unable to provide the necessary protection in that camp is their sole responsibility. And the government of South Sudan cannot be held answerable. The Deputy Special Representative of the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, Mustafa Sumare, said the killings at the Malakal camp was one of the major challenges facing the UN in Africa's newest nation. Unfortunately, civilian-on-civilian violence complicated by the presence of armed elements remain a frequent occurrence within these sites and underscores the challenge the mission faces in the sustainability. And this is how the leader of the Democratic Party for Change, one of South Sudan's opposition parties, Lama Kol, characterized killings in Malakal. It points to a very dangerous uh, direction. The government will be held responsible for what has happened because the attack was done by soldiers wearing uh, official uniform, targeting two ethnicities and uh, burning the tents of the UN compound, the place, and there was nobody coming to the rescue of the armed uh, innocent civil population that were being targeted. South Sudan opposition leader Lama Kol. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. U.S. troops deployed to Cameroon to help fight the Boko Haram terrorism have donated school benches and didactic material to Cameroonian schools. 
Cameroonians have been expressing satisfaction, saying the troops have at least, for now, shown interest in their immediate well-being. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Hundreds of teachers and school children have gathered here at the government primary school near the 301 Cameroon Military Air Force Base in the northern town of Garua to receive school benches, chalk, exercise books, pens and pencils from American troops assisting Cameroon to fight Boko Haram terrorism. Among the curious observers is Nana Mamudu, whose three children attend the school. He says he now believes the American troops are interested in their well-being. We do not know what the Americans were doing here. They were only staying in their military camp. But now that they have decided to help us with school benches, we know they have our interests at heart. Cameroon Air Force Colonel Evina Bartolome Marie says after they helped the community to build the school, American troops detached to Garua accepted to provide some furniture and help them encourage children to go to school. We are struggling with parents to fix the school. We have already done it. The problem we had was a problem of desk. And as American people provide us some desk, we are very grateful. Last year, Cameroon announced it had closed at least 200 schools suffering frequent Boko Haram attacks on its northern border with Nigeria. Many students and primary school pupils have been seeking education in safer localities in the Central African nation's hinterlands, thereby exerting pressure on infrastructure and adding to some already congested schools. A United Nations report published last December states that a million children have been deprived of education as 2,000 schools in Chad, Cameroon, Nigeria, Niger and other countries suffering from Boko Haram insurgency has led to the destruction of schools and infrastructure. Roberto Quiroz, public relations officer at the United States Embassy in Cameroon, says Americans came in to help because they are interested in the well-being of all children and in recognition of Cameroon's efforts to eradicate the terrorist group. President Obama talks about the future of Africa. He remembers that every child has great value and every child deserves a great opportunity for the future. We have seen that Cameroon has taken a very brave stand with courage to fight Boko Haram. And the United States is here to support that leadership, support that vision, to support those efforts that are made by Cameroonians. American troops have been helping Cameroon fight Boko Haram by providing intelligence, war equipment and training its soldiers. In March 2015, Cameroon launched an 8 million United States dollar emergency plan to construct schools in safer localities away from volatile areas overrun by Boko Haram. The country said it still needed more support to cope with increasing school demands. It is feared that lack of education may fuel radicalism, especially now that Boko Haram is recruiting child suicide bombers. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yawundi.
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. A team of researchers in South Africa is developing a world-class program which is expected to rapidly, accurately and cost-effectively test HIV drug resistance. The program, dubbed the Exotype, is in response to t- statistics which show that of the 3 million South Africans currently on ARV treatment, almost 10% do not respond adequately to the first-line drugs produced, provided rather to them. Although the program initially focused on HIV drug resistance testing, the team is also testing to see whether it can address TB and antibiotic resistance. For more insight on this, here's Dr. Richard Gordon from the South African Medical Research Council. So this is a project that we funded at the University of Western Cape with a PI called Simon Travis. And basically what it is, it's a technology that takes complicated DNA data, which is your human genome and bugs of HIV that anyone would acquire, and basically sequences it very quickly and gives out a document of information that the doctor can use to prescribe medication to the patient. Doctor, do you regard drug resistance as one of the most significant challenges confronting both clinicians and patients? I think if you look around the world, I think drug resistance is a real problem. The main driver is getting the right the patient on the right treatment as quickly as possible. So if they're on the wrong treatment for the type of strain of the bug that they have, the drugs actually just don't work. So if you don't control it well in the beginning, you create a big problem for yourself further down the line with resistance and massive resistance. So TB is a great example, understanding which resistance strain you have for TB. If the patients are on the wrong drugs that don't work, it actually makes the problem far worse than better. In simple terms, how does resistance against drugs develop? What factors play a role there? Well, drug resistance is a complicated factor. I'm not an expert in the area, but I will give you my very basic understanding of it. So if you're talking about diseases such as malaria, for example, you can create resistance from a couple of different areas. The one is if you're underdosed. If you're prescribing a medication that you're supposed to be taking two tablets a day and you take one tablet a day, you're not getting it above the level that's enough to kill the bacteria, and then basically the bacteria overcomes the, the drug that you have. The other one, obviously, which is quite well known, is if you don't finish your course of antibiotics. If ever you go to a doctor and they say, look, finish your treatment, the main reason for finishing a treatment is that you completely obliterate any organism 
that lives in your body, if you stop the treatment halfway because you're feeling better, then what happens is the bug carries on to grow, even though it's low levels, and it genetically mutates to become resistant to the medication that you got. So that's the basic underlying principle of drug resistance, and normally associated with not completing the treatment or not having enough drug on board to kill and completely obliterate the drug before it can resurface again. How much confidence do you have in this technology in terms of addressing drug resistance? This type of technology is very much what they would call the way of the future. Some people call it precision medicine. Some people call it patient stratification. You see it in cancer today when somebody comes in and they get the drug sequence of the particular tissue biopsy, and based on that, they will give you the right kind of drug. So without question, it's an approach to getting patients on the right treatment quicker is here to stay and you're going to see it grow in sort of a tidal wave of applications over the next you know, 10 to 20 years. HIV is quite unique because it's slightly different take to how everyone else is doing it. This is a cloud-based technology where you're really getting patients on the right antiretrovirals as quick as possible. It'll be applicable to cancer going forward and you know cancer is effectively the different mutations which has got some similarities to what we're talking about now. But I think you will see this kind of approach taking over many, many different approaches to medicine going forward. Apart from drug resistance, what other problems does the technology solve? Well, cost is one. I mean, when this project was started, and I think that PI, Simon Travers, would be a good one to be talking to us, but essentially this technology has brought down the time to getting patients on the right treatment and the cost. By automating the technology with built-in checks and balances in an online system, basically the whole process takes about half an hour and it is approximately a tenth of what the cost was about two years ago doing this. So there it's multifaceted getting patients on treatment quicker and ultimately if you pay at the end of the day, you know, governments or medical aid schemes, it brings down the cost. And you're getting the patients on the benefit on the right drug at the same time. So there are many different assets to it from an economic aspect, from a patient compliant aspect to a cost element that I think you will see this area growing considerably in the next 10, 20 years. And finally there, will the test be made available for the public health sector? We have been trialling it in the public health sector for the last year or so. I think it is very much the intention that this is a system that gets taken up by the government sector in the main centralised labs. If we can get this technology right where it can be going to point of care, that's very much the end goal for governments and big public sectors to be able to use this. That's Dr. Richard Gordon from the South African Medical Research Council speaking to Elizabeth Ledeja. Cases of the meningitis disease in Africa have reduced. Statistics show that cases of the infectious disease went from over 250,000 during an outbreak in 1996 to just 80 confirmed cases in 2015 among countries that had not yet conducted mass immunization campaigns and among those unvaccinated. However, with the end of the five-year immunization period, vaccine experts are urging for continuation in the vaccination lest cases recur in a period of 15 years. Coletta Wanjohi reports. Epidemics of the meningococcal A meningitis, which is a bacterial infection of the thin lining surrounding the brain and the spinal cord, have swept across 26 countries in sub-Saharan Africa for a century, killing and disabling young people every year. Meningitis is highly feared disease on the continent. It can kill or cause severe brain damage in a person within hours. Epidemics usually start at the beginning of the calendar year when dry suns from the Sahara Desert begin blowing southward. A vaccine called MenAfric Vac was first introduced in Burkina Faso in late 2010. 
Since then, the World Health Organization has reported that 16 of the 26 countries of the African meningitis belt, which stretches from Senegal in the west to Ethiopia in the east, have conducted initial mass vaccination campaigns to protect their people. Mashidiso Moeti is the World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa. Today, over 235 million people in 16 countries have been vaccinated and an even larger number are protected by MenaFreeVac, a licensed conjugate vaccine developed to the highest international standards. No case of meningitis has been recorded yet in vaccinated populations. Cases of the deadly infectious disease went from over 250,000 during an outbreak in 1996 to just 80 confirmed cases in 2015 among countries that had not yet conducted mass immunization campaigns and among those unvaccinated. This is according to scientists at the Meningitis Vaccine Project. Now, however, the Pioneer Vaccine Development Project has ended and the Meningitis Vaccine Project and partners are working with African countries' health officials to carefully plan for the next steps in the continued deployment of this vaccine called MenAfricVac. A mathematical model determined that if no subsequent immunization program was implemented after the large one-off vaccination campaigns, countries could expect to see epidemics reoccur within 15 years. Steve Davis is the president and chief executive officer for PATH, an organization that has partnered greatly with the World Health Organization since the beginning of the anti-meningitis vaccine campaign. One of our concerns is while we've had a great success in uh, coming up with a vaccine for the strain in Africa, while we've got it at the right price, while we've got it um, scaled up, is that if there's not an ongoing commitment to vaccine strategies in the national immunization programs, these kinds of things can back, backslide. So we're very much celebrating today um, a great success, but we're also saying we have to keep working harder and pushing harder to make sure that um, uh, the uh, global community supports national strategies to make sure this keeps going. Well, and if all goes well, do we have a time frame for total elimination of meningitis globally? It's hard to imagine a world where there won't be some meningitis, but um, we do believe that over the next five to ten years, if we can continue the drum, the, the, the effort we have today of uh, scaling this up, of ensuring that it gets incorporated into national programs, um, of looking at some of the other strains of meningitis that now we need to keep pushing on and creating a probably more effective pentavalent vaccine, um, those those things might take us another decade, but that's, there's a very optimistic uh, view of this. World Health Organization says that all countries at risk must finish conducting vaccination campaigns and begin incorporating the vaccine into routine childhood immunization programs. Coleta Wanjoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Ratings agency Moody's is waiting for more detail in Finance Minister Pravin Gordon's budget speech later this week to determine if South Africa will succeed in steadying market confidence. Senior Vice President at Moody's, Kristen Lindo, and lead sovereign analyst for South Africa, in a statement said that President Jacob Zuma's State of the Nation speech acknowledged the country's deep economic challenges and provided hints of future budget savings. South African investors were watching the address with magnified interest because the right move from Zuma could ensure ensure the country remains out of junk status, while the wrong move would plunge the country into the sub-investment grade status that would have perilous consequences on the economy's GDP. 
More from economist at the financial consultancy firm Efficient Group, Francho Stoffberg. He has a couple of things that he should say, but he only has a couple of things that he actually can say. And that's where things really get difficult, and that's where he has to start wielding this um, immortal, if you want to call it, sword that he has now being, uh, the well, he's referred to as the unfireable minister regarding what happened in uh, December with um, Tlantlanene. So what he would have to try and explain to these credit agencies, now, Moody's is a big player, but let me just mention as a side note that S&P are actually the big guys, and most of the credit concern is regarding their review on South Africa's credit rating. And they are in, a, in one accord with Moody's, though, and uh, they both are actually have their eyes on South Africa, and specifically the fiscus, to try and see if we can apply more prudent um, fiscal spending. And what that means is that we do not overspend and that, that basically curb our spending and that we do not waste spending and that we also can continue to collect the amount of revenue that we have been collecting mm. in the last couple of years. Mm. So yes, from a spending side, the very important thing is that keep your eyes on Wednesday and that you should try and curb back is civil servants' wage increases. That's a very, very important one. And then, of course, how he is going to repay our massive amount of debt that South Africa has. We have about 1.93 trillion rand. That's 1,930 billion rands worth of debt. So that we spend almost more on interest than we spend on education and these sort of things. So mm. not almost, but it's, it's, it's quite substantial amount. So that's very important. What is he going to do to bring down spending? And the major thing where we can save is by not giving civil servants the type of increases that they have been giving over the last couple of years. But that's a very important thing, as I mentioned. There's things that you should do, but there's only a number of things that you actually can do. Because if you mm-hmm. don't give uh, 2.2 million individuals working for the civil servants the wage increases that they think they should get, then they, of course, don't feel like they should vote for you at the general elections at the later this year. So that is a very important thing. And the other important thing from the income side is uh, where is going to get the money. And and there we can look at things like personal income tax. He's definitely going to tax the wealthy even more. And I wouldn't be surprised if he starts taxing even the middle class Mm. quite a bit. But once again, then the red alert goes off um, regarding will they still vote for us. And then we can start talking about that. But I don't think that's really up for debate because we are in such a tight social addition over the last couple of months that really putting more pressure on the poorest individuals in South Africa might be another vote killer. So mm. there's really this weight between what he can do and what he should do. Francois, there is a lot of uh, talk about um, South Africa, you know, almost moving into that junk status uh, zone. And I know that you've mentioned another ratings agency firm, which is bigger than Moody's. But what would the implications be for the nation? You know, worst case scenario, the nation moves into that uh, junk status. That's a very good question. And it's actually a very serious issue because, as I just mentioned, if they decrease us to, to junk status, that means... All the debt that we now make from year on forward becomes a lot more expensive. So let's say government wants to build a bridge or government wants to build houses or individuals in South Africa or government wants to build hospitals or schools or whatever it may be. All that money that they borrow from the rest of the world, which is, as I just said, billions of amounts, now costs even more. That means that the debt repayments or the interest that government has to pay starts ballooning. And if that balloons, then they have less money to spend on things like education, on grants, Mm. on old aid pensions, etc. And then we might fall into this thing. And this is really worst case scenario, but um, it's a very interesting theory that that I just want to make your listeners aware of. And that's what we refer to as the debt trap. 
Mm. Now, what the debt trap is, and unfortunately, a lot of individuals in South Africa know exactly what a debt trap is. That's where your interest part, your interest repayments become such a large share of your income that you are unable to make those payments. And that's Francois Stoffbach, economist at the financial consultancy firm Efficient Group, talking to Zikona Miso. We're now joined by Asanda for the news headlines. Good evening. The U.S. Special Envoy in the Great Lakes, Thomas Periello, calls on the Burundian government to engage all stakeholders in an attempt to solve the problem of refugees faced in that country. Statistics show a reduction in cases of meningitis in Africa, and the Anglican Church in Southern Africa welcomes gay and lesbian members into their congregations. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A new report titled Art Under Threat, released by Free Muse today, summarizes censorship and threats on artistic freedom in 2015 in over 70 countries. In total, Free Muse, an independent international membership organization advocating and defending freedom of expression for musicians and composers worldwide, registered 469 cases of censorship and attacks on artists and violations of their rights in 2015, making it the worst recorded year yet, nearly doubling the number of cases from 2014 with a 98% increase from the year previous wherein 237 cases were registered. Ole Ritov, Free Muse Executive Director, says the disturbing increase can partially be explained by the fact that Free Muse and its collaborating partners have improved their documentation methods and strengthened their networks, as well as the fact that artistic freedom is an issue that is slowly gaining larger attention. I see there are two reasons here. One reason is that I think we are better now at documenting violations. The network is larger, but we also say that it's still underreported because you have to compare the situation with uh, media organizations and media networks worldwide. In every single country, you have journalist associations who are really good at documenting violations against freedom of expression. Now, we don't have that in the, the cultural and arts field. There are actually no artist organizations at all who document violations. The film industry does not document censorship at all. So Freemus being a human rights organization focusing on artistic freedom is actually the only one who who does this work full time. But then we have network partners. So part of the explanation is that 
the network is reporting more efficiently. So we do not know whether exactly there has been more violations, but we are registering more violations than we did uh, last year. When it comes to the UN level, it's been a long road to actually raise awareness in the UN because it refers to that there's been a lot of attention to violations of freedom expressions for journalists, exactly because journalist organizations are very efficient and there's a great solidarity amongst journalists, not so in the artist communities. In fact, several artists are basically competing and not supporting each other. So we've had to struggle and, and, and really advocate artistic freedom in the UN with the help, especially from the Special Rapporteur in the field of cultural rights when she did a report a couple of years ago. And gradually, through uh, country reports where we have submitted uh, reports on violations in specific countries, there is a growing awareness, but it's still only 53 or 56 countries in the UN who actually have supported an oral statement in the UN Human Rights Council. There are still another 140 countries to go, and unfortunately some of the countries block each other because basically in the UN system, like in the Security Council, groups of countries collaborate. So if we group of very strong countries, for instance, Egypt and Pakistan are very strong, representing the Organization of Islamic Countries, and if they go against this, mostly the other countries wouldn't support such a declaration. So they're all kind of political games taking place in the UN. And what is the most attacked art form, do you find? Music is definitely the most attacked art form. I think when it comes to censorship, there would probably be more censorship in the film industry, but that does not affect necessarily the artists. So, so musicians are affected. Musicians are those who are mostly attacked. We saw also the, the brutal attack on the Bataclan venue in Paris in uh, November, where almost 90 people were killed. The musicians escaped, but the audience was attacked. And that's exactly the same kind of me- mechanism of fear you can spread when you are threatening festivals, for instance, in Mali or in other countries, because the hundreds of thousands of people attend music festivals and concerts and so on. And the thing about musicians is, of course, that their messages are being circulated. You may be able to censor a song, as we say, but you cannot really kill a song. It will spread with people. People will sing it. We saw that also during the resistance in the, during the apartheid period, that the apartheid system couldn't stop people you know, using those songs. So songs are in general a very, very strong tool in social mobilization, and that's also why it's targeted. And finally, Ole, what is most disturbing, I find, is the killings of artists, the imprisonment, the abductions, you know? Can't governments or otherwise, you know, those non-state actors be held to account by the international community? There is, unfortunately, several countries where even the state, I mean, the state itself may be brutal, but the, the state does not necessarily control all areas. For instance, in Pakistan, it's always been basically non-state actors who've been killing the artists. It was the same in Afghanistan. They are 
basically religiously motivated, and uh, they they target the artists because the artists are a symbol of everything they don't like. And I don't think those states are really able to protect their citizens. They cannot protect attacks on schools, so how can they protect the artists? That's very uh, difficult for those states to do. In very few states, we've seen that the state have been killers of artists, although one of the really worrying things that we've seen in the past couple of months are the developments in Burundi. Uh, one musician was uh, abducted by police and killed. That's been registered. So it's really worrying what's happening in Burundi. That's Ole Rithoff, Free Music Executive Director on the line from Denmark, speaking to Channel Africa's Jose Dingake. The Bugaila Farmers Association in Uganda has called on the United Nations Development Program to sever ties with Bidco Africa, a Kenyan-based edible oil producer accused of land grabbing, human rights violations and environmental disasters in Uganda, Kenya and Tanzania. Alex Irio, spokesperson for the Bugaila Farmers Association, says Bidco Africa has deforested more than 7,500 hectares of rainforest and smallholder farms on Bugala Island on Lake Victoria to make way for the largest palm oil plantations in Africa. Because there are a number of reasons that are why they're doing that. First of all, Bidico grabbed the farmer's land and sent them out of their land. They weren't compensated. The few that were compensated were given peanuts. And there are people, there are outgrowers, outgrowers that are doing palm oil farming. They are paid very little money. In other words, the way that the picture that Bidico is, is painting towards UNDP is not the right picture. That's why the farmers want the officials of UNDP to go down to the ground and see what is really happening there. Looking at Bidico's operations in Uganda, yes. in the area where the farmers, they want them not to operate anymore, what's the environmental situation there in the area because of uh, the operations of Bitco. When you look at the environment, all the forests were cut down. All the trees were cut down and they put up a palm plantation, which is covering almost three quarters of the island. And when you look at the beaches, they did not leave buffer zones. So all the chemicals, all the rubbish that is from the plantations runs down to the waters, which affects the fish because there used to be a lot of fishing just around the island. And now all the fish within the area, most of the fish died. They cannot do too much fishing within the area. And many other things that are affecting the environment. When you look at the chemicals they use for fertilizers, they are affecting the land in that area. This situation in Uganda by Bediko, Africa, Mm. is it the same as it is in Uganda, in Kenya, as well as Tanzania? Yeah, here it is the same thing that is happening because uh, people have protested in Kenya, they have protested in Tanzania, and the workers themselves that are also working in the factories of Bidiko are also protesting because of the poor treatment. They're not paid in time, they're not paid well, they're treated poorly in their places of work. And there was a demonstration in the UK, and people had placards demonstrating against the actions that Bidiko is doing down here in people in East Africa. And the reason that's why they took the demonstration in, in UK is because the CEO of Bidico had been called to come and speak in the Financial Times conference 
So the people stood just by the roadside and protested. What could be said about human rights violation by the company itself, this BDCO Africa? People say that they are violated because most farmers do not have where to grow crops from. Their houses were put down, were destroyed. They do not have where to sleep. There are ladies within the area whose husbands left them. The husbands abandoned them and went to the mainland because they, they could not make money within the island to support the family. So the husbands abandoned them, went to the mainland to seek for money. And some husbands have taken years without getting back to their families because they do not have what to bring back home. Talking about this uh, Bidiko Africa, how did they acquire land in Uganda, Kenya, as well as Tanzania? I cannot speak for other countries, but I would like to speak for Uganda because that's where these farmers are. But when I was talking to the farmers, they told me that Bidiko representatives say that the land was given to them by the president, by the first family. Without any papers uh, or any form of legality, they were just given the land? They don't have the paperwork. That's what they told them. And after a couple of months, the farmers saw graders destroying all their crops, making way for palm oil plantations. So this palm oil plantation, how are they benefiting the people in Uganda? At first, everybody thought that the plantations of palm oil growing in Kalanda is going to, to benefit people in Uganda in a way of employment. But when you look at the people that are working in the factories in that area, they are mistreated. They are not paid uh, in time. They are overworked. And there are farmers that resorted to um, palm oil growing. They are outgrowers. When you look at the money they are given, the money is very little, and that's why they're holding demonstrations every now and then, just within that area. These demonstrations, have they been heeded by the authorities, or is just uh, farmers uh, fighting, would you say, a losing battle? The authority, every after, some, every after a demonstration is held, the authorities come in, but still they bring nothing to the farmers or to the demonstrators. Why? Because what the outdoors want is a, a raise in the kilo of the palm fruits. They want to be given a raise in the payments, but that is never done. They only come to them and sweet talk them and say that, okay, give us this time, then we shall increase the money that we pay. But when the time ends, there's nothing that is being is done. That's, that's why they keep on demonstrating again and again. The Ugandan economy, is it benefiting from these palm oil plantations? We are not sure of that because we're not even given the details. The details are not shown to us because most of the Ugandans do not know that they have started harvesting oil from the palms. Most of the Ugandans don't know that. But in the actual sense, when you get to the ground, they are really harvesting. This oil, is it for export or is it for local consumption in Uganda? There are products that are made out of the oil and some of the products are exported. Some of them are consumed within the country. That was Alex Erio, spokesperson for the Bugala Farmers Association on the line from Uganda, talking to Wandile Kalipa. So, Wasani, what do you have for us in the world of economic news?
In economics news uh, this hour, MTN Group in talks with Nigerian regulators over the lifting of sanctions imposed on Africa's biggest uh, wireless company for failing to meet up phone service quality standards. And the Nigerian Communications Commission is investigating whether Johannesburg-based MTN is now compliant with their standards. The sanctions imposed in December last year include the withdrawal of regulatory services. MTN shares fell sharply after the news of the discussions. Meanwhile, the Nigerian Naira has firmed sharply to 375 Naira per US dollar on the parallel market after importers uh, started to reduce demand for dollars. This follows uh, the President uh, Muhammadu Buhari's defiance of, uh, over devaluing the currency. Buhari rejected the idea of devaluing the West African nation's currency despite a hammering of the Naira on the secondary market last week. Nigeria's central bank has uh, resisted uh, the depreciation by imposing hard currency caps. And ratings agency uh, Moody's is waiting for more detail in Finance Minister Pravin Gordon's speech uh, later this week to determine if South Africa will succeed in steering the market confidence. Investors await uh, Gordon's budget speech uh, for direction. Economist Francois Stovbeck explains. That you should try and curb that is civil servants wage increases that's a very very important one and then of course how he is going to repay our massive amount of debt that south africa has we have about 1.93 trillion rand that's 1930 billion rands worth of debt so that we spend almost more on interest than we spend on education and these sort of things so mm. not almost but it's, it's, it's quite substantial amount so that's very important. What is he going to do to bring down spending? And the major thing where we can save is by not giving civil servants the type of increases that they have been giving over the last couple of years. Diamond mining companies in Zimbabwe's Maranga Fields are to stop their operations immediately because the licenses have expired. This is a directive from the country's mines minister, Waltachi Dakwa. The Diamond Fields, located in the eastern part of the country, close to the Mozambican border, are mined by nine joint venture companies. Shidakwa says the new state-owned Zimbabwe consolidated diamond company will now hold all the diamond claims in the country. South Africa has been ranked uh, the cheapest country in the world to live and retire, according to a report which compares dollar strength to a number of global currencies. Gold banking rates generated uh, the rankings based on cost of living. The group says uh, given the fact that uh, South Africa is, is also the world's largest producer of platinum, gold and chromium, it should have a thriving economy. It says South Africa also offers lower prices on consumer goods and rent costs. India is rated as the second cheapest country, followed by Kosovo. And that's your economics news. Now your sport with Fakile. In our sports update this hour, let's kick off with the news that Kenya sports minister Hassan Wario says he is confident. They will meet all anti-doping compliance requirements set by the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. 
Kenya remains the powerhouse of endurance running both on track and in big city marathons. But about 40 of the country's athletes have been banned for doping in the past three years. Wario told a news conference in Nairobi that is confident that Kenya will meet WADA's compliance requirements, which include passing a stiff anti-doping law and the establishment of a fully operational anti-doping agency. If Kenya does not meet WADA's demands, it could be banned from competition. We are extremely committed and open about dealing with doping and dopers. And Kenya is keen on ensuring that whoever wins does so in a clean and fair manner. Therefore, we shall continue working closely with primarily WADA and the athletic sparing body IAAF to ensure that eventually Kenya uh, boasts of a robust and globally acknowledged NADO, which is ADA. The work has already been started and we need to complete it in good time uh, with the help of the legislators. Uh, so when the, the bill comes to parliament, we hope uh, our legislators will help us to fast track it so that we can meet the two-month uh, de- deadline. And athletes and athletics officials have in the past complained that the government was moving too slowly to put anti-doping measures in place. Warrior says the reason the law had taken long to be written to the point of going to parliament is that it is a legal requirement for it to be examined by as many interest parties as possible. When WADA were here at the beginning of the month, it was very clear that we were not going to make the 11th February deadline. Because the law and the policy, uh, as you all know, in this country takes a longer time. Uh, so we told them very clearly that this has to be validated. We have to have workshops. It has to go to the cabinet. After that, it has to go to the parliament. It will take time. And the 2016 Winter Olympic Games in Lillehammer in Norway were brought to a close by the IOC President Thomas Bach. United States finished top of the medals table with 16 medals gold at 10 and 6 silver. South Korea also claimed 16 but had 10 golds, 3 silvers and 3 bronze. Russia are third with 7 gold, 8 silver and 9 bronze at a total of 24 medals. During the ceremony, the Olympic flag and flame were handed over to Lausanne who will host the 2020 Winter Youth Olympic Games. So now when you go home, Please uh, take uh, this Olympic spirit which you have shown here, take it with you. Share this Olympic spirit uh, with all your friends and communities. And if you do so, and if we all do so, if we all share this Olympic uh, spirit of friendship, of understanding and of tolerance with each other, then uh, together we can make the world a better place. Herewith, I declare the second Winter Youth Olympic Games, Lillehammer 2016, closed. I invite the young athletes to meet in four years in the Olympic capital of Lausanne, Switzerland, to celebrate the third Winter Youth Olympic Games. And the South African select women's sevens have been drawn in a challenging pool with Brazil, the USA select sevens, and a mixed international team, Stars Rugby 2, at the Las Vegas International from the 3rd to the 6th of March. The tournament kicks off one day before the US sevens and will run concurrently with the men's HSBC World Rugby Sevens Series tournament until the final day's play on Sunday, where the champions will be crowned. 
The South African Select Women will kick off the tournament on the 3rd of March against Stars Rugby the 2nd at 1900 hours Central African time, which will be followed by a clash against Brazil later in the evening. They will conclude the pool stages on the 4th of March with a clash against the USA Select before the 16 teams battle it out in either the Cup quarterfinals or the bowl section. And the South Africa's women's hockey team and India drew the second test to all at Hartley Vale in Cape Town on Sunday after India had led 2-1 at halftime. The result leaves India 1-0 winners in the two-test series. This after, they won the first test 1-0 on Saturday. This test series formed the opening leg of the private property summer series, which features 10 men's and women's test matches in Cape Town and Stellenbosch from this weekend on the 5th of March, to the 5th of March rather. And that's your sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. Recapping the top stories this hour, South Sudan's government reacts angrily to the ethnic killing of 20 people at a UN camp. Statistics show a marked decrease in new cases of meningitis in Africa. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Tracy Bumgard, producer Leander Mayome, technical producer Safisa Mashejo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, Or you can tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Temela Sazizola by Mbongeni Ngema.